if you ask me in this season <clears throat> of my spiritual journey, what I find to be the most difficult thing in Christianity to really grasp, to really believe, to really accept, it would be that God really loves sinners, or even specifically that God really loves me. Now I can imagine as I say that, you might immediately be thinking to yourself, I mean that's so simple, right? That's basic Christianity, that's just, that's 101. There's all kinds of things that are hard about Christianity. All kinds of things that are difficult to accept, understand, reconcile in your mind. I, I mean, you can, you can talk with me about the Trinity. I mean, that, that's one to linger on, right? How is God one and God three and triune? Or how, how is there a good God in heaven while there's so much evil and suffering that he permits on the earth? Or how do we even have proof or know, really know, that there is a God or that God does exist? And, and I'd agree with you on all of them. And I'd say with you, Yes, those are hard questions worth pondering and thinking over. And yet, if I'm honest, I'll tell you, the one that sort of <clears throat> nags at me, the one that constantly affects me, the one that sort of uh, is rattled around in my soul is much more basic. It's this question of God really loves me. Like, loves me all the time kind of loves me, and, and the kind of way that we often talk about it, right? And, and hear me, it's not that I have a problem understanding that intellectually here. I get it. It's, it's a much harder thing, to, though, to know it here or to feel it here. I don't know if you could relate to that. To feel that I'm presently, all the time, loved by God, to live there, to walk in that reality, right? And, and if you think about the kinds of things we say as, as we proclaim the gospel or the good news, the heart of the Christian faith are statements that we throw around. Statements like, God loves us unconditionally. Right? You ponder over that. Unconditionally, meaning that there's never going to be a way or a moment that God loves you more than he does right now. That you're never going to do something to make him love you a bit more or do something to make him love you a bit less. That God loves you as much as he's ever going to love you right now. Or that nothing you ever do is ever going to change the love of God for you. He, he doesn't love you on your best day a bit more, on your worst day a bit less. He absolutely, unconditionally loves you. And, and if I'm honest, I don't know that I'm the only one that struggles to sort of live that out and live in that. For example, if some of you worry all the time. If, if you're always worrying, if the sky is always falling and the worst thing that could always happen is just around the corner, it's coming this week, it's going to happen. If you're living there, I do wonder, would you worry a tad less if you understood how much God loves you? Like that the, the king of the universe absolutely loves you and is never going to do a single thing to destroy you. Never going to allow into your life one thing to ultimately harm or hurt you. Or if you're a Christian here, maybe, maybe you can relate. Have you ever thought through, you know, when you sin, that sin again, the one that you've promised never to sin again, and you go back to that sin again, or you've missed your devotional time again, and you find all these inconsistencies, do you ever, can you relate to the thought that you just deep down wonder if God is just so disappointed so disgusted. In fact, if I were to ask you, what do you picture God looking like when he thinks about you right now? 
Maybe you get a sense of, of what you feel. This hasn't been a great week, so I'm not really sure what his face looks like to me right now. Or, or if, you, if you've ever been to that place where maybe even it's just in the spot where you're at your worst, where you're, you fail, in the spot where you're pretty sure God actually might hate you, to really think that's where he loves you the most. In the very place you're convinced God hates you, might be the place where he actually loves you the most. I mean, I, I think if we talked together, you, you would come around with me and say, yeah, I know the love of God, and yet it's very hard to know the love of God, to feel the love of God, to actually walk in the love of God, to know that I'm loved all the time. I think we all have a hard time with that. And I, and I think that believing and understanding how much and how wide and how great is the love of God is so hard. I think this is why Paul in the New Testament will actually pray that God would help his people get that. Right? You, you think about this. There's this verse in Ephesians 1 where Paul is writing to a bunch of Christians, to a church. And he says this. He says in verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father who is in heaven. And then in verse 18, he tells them what he prays. He says, I pray that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints... What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I want you to think about that for a second. Paul is praying for a church and he's saying, when I get down on my knees and I pray for you, what I pray is that you would have strength from above to understand the dimensions of God's love. You think about that. He, he, he doesn't say, think of all the things he doesn't say he's praying for them. He doesn't say, when I get on my knees, I'm a pastor for you. As your pastor, when I get on my knees, he doesn't say, I'm praying that God would show you the mystery of the Trinity so that you could work that out and understand God. He doesn't say, I, I pray that God would show you the answer to the problem of evil so that you would be able to reconcile a good God in heaven with suffering on the earth. Or, or I, I pray that God would show you you know, some answer that you're struggling with. He prays, when I get down on my knees, I'm praying that God would help you to see the dimensions, the height and length and breadth and width of the love of God for you. Almost as if God knew we were going to need help. We were going to need help to understand this love of God. And so what God does in, in knowing that that need of ours. What God does is he gives us his word and in a hundred and million different ways, coming at it from various angles, he tries to communicate over and over again how God loves us. And, and that's a lot of what the scriptures is. In different angles, sort of trying to beat this message over and over again about the incredible love of God for us. And so you'll read a passage and you'll say, you, you want to know what the love of God is like? It's like a shepherd that had a hundred sheep and one is lost and he leaves the 99 to go and find that one. You want to know what the love of God is like? The love of God is like a father who had two sons and one went away and wasted his father's wealth. And when he came back home in rags, the father sprints down that hill and wraps him up again. This is what the love of God is like. And so God gives one story after another, one passage after another, as if he's just trying to mount on top of the other over and over again this message of the love of God. And as he's mounting one passage after another, to that pile he throws in the book of Hosea. 
and says, you want another metaphor of what the love of God for you is like? It's like a faithful husband who loves an unfaithful wife. You want another metaphor for what this love of God for you is like? It's like a man who can't help stop. He can't stop loving and he won't stop loving a cheating wife. That's what the love of God is like. And so he gives you this message of Hosea to again communicate to you. You need more pictures of what the love of God for you is like. And here's another one. So if you're here this morning, and it has been a while since you have felt, you know the love of God, but if it's been a while since you've felt the love of God for you, then I'd invite you to linger over the message of Hosea, because God's throwing another metaphor onto the pile to try and convince you to the core of the length and depth and height and breadth of the love of God for you in Christ. So let me pray, ask God to help you, because that's what Paul did, to understand this love, and then we'll walk through Hosea together. Father, we come together and I bow my knees in your presence in, and, and ask that you may give to all the saints here strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that they may be filled with the fullness of God. Come, bring that truth to bear on our hearts that we would actually feel the depths of your love in a new and fresh way today, that any of us who struggle with this would walk out of here again reminded of this great love for us, supremely sown through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, now Hosea is not a particularly well-known passage of scripture. It's not a book maybe that we're all that familiar with. So let me just give you a little bit of background so that you can jump into it with some understanding. Last week, Pastor Benu preached for us and he preached on Solomon as we're walking through in this series, Shadows, the Old Testament story. And Solomon is David's king. He rules over what might be called the golden age of Israel. I mean, everything's going right. Riches are coming, power is coming, the land is expanding, the people are doing well. It's the golden era of Israel. But one generation later, everything starts to fall apart. Because Solomon's son will rule and reign over a time where Israel actually fractures into two. There, there's sort of a civil war that takes place, and, and this once united nation of God is now split in two. And now you end up with two kingdoms of the nation of Israel. The northern kingdom, which retains the name Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And as we're walking through this series called Shadows, it's so helpful to become more and more literate in the scriptures, more and more aware of what's happening in the Old Testament. So Israel now splits into two kingdoms. You've got Israel in the north. And as you read through the story of this kingdom in the north, what you read is they are a spiritual wasteland. It's just a mess. The succession of one awful king after another, they are neck deep in sin. They are, they are full of idolatry. They are a spiritually barren wasteland. Okay? They're in a place where they are acknowledging the Lord with their lips, but they are in bed with idols of every kind. And that's the picture. They, they worship God with their mouths, but they are in bed with every kind of idol. And so what God does is he sends one prophet or a messenger after another 
to call out to the people, to rebuke them, to reprimand them, to correct them, to appeal to them, to plead with them, come back, come back to the Lord, come back to your God. And in a, in a season when Israel is just about to hit rock bottom, when it's about to get so bad that it can't possibly get worse, and in fact, in just a few d decades, a foreign nation is going to swallow up Israel and take them into exile. There, there's going to be no more Israel left. I mean, when they're that low, God sends another messenger named Hosea as a prophet to bring a message to the people. And what he says to Hosea is essentially this. He says, Hosea, I'm going to use your, not just your mouth to deliver a message to my people. I'm actually going to use your life to show them a message. Right? Their ears are not hearing well. I'm going to take your life to show them a message even if their ears won't hear it, their eyes will at least see it. And so here's what Hosea is going to become. Hosea is not just a parable of a story that might have happened, like Jesus' parables. Hosea is not just going to tell you a tale. Hosea is biography. This is history. This is his life. And what God is saying is you are going to be a flesh and blood picture of the message I want to communicate to my people. So... I'm going to borrow your life, not just your mouth, to say a few things. I'm going to borrow your life to show them what I want to show them. And so here's what he tells Hosea. Hosea 1 verse 2. If you've got a Bible, you can leave it open there. If not, it'll be on the screen. Hosea 1 verse 2. This is how it begins. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Okay, so here, here's what happens. It, you, you can almost count how many times I'm going to say whoredom in this sermon, right? He says, first, Hosea, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be a flesh and blood living picture of what my relationship with my people look like. So Hosea, I need you to get married. If we could time out there for a second and pause there, we'd say, all right, so far, so good, right? Hosea, I need you to get married, and, and here's why. My relationship with Israel is going to be pictured through marriage, right? If my people are going to understand what my relationship with them is like, I need you to get married because marriage is a metaphor of the kind of relationship I want to have with my people. I need you to get married because marriage is the kind of relationship I want to have with my people. And, and hear that. That's not just Israel, right? So we're not just reading about something for them. This applies to all of us, right? So let's, let's contextualize that for us. I want Seven Mile Road to know what kind of relationship I want to have with each of them. And so I need marriage as the metaphor to describe that kind of relationship. Now, maybe you've heard of Christians. A, a popular Christian saying is that Christianity is not just a religion, it's a relationship. You've heard that before? There's a church on Bustleton Avenue. That's their sign right now. I drive by it every day. And, and here's the message. Christianity is not just a religion. It's a relationship. It's a good saying. Because what it's trying to communicate to us is Seven Mile Road, particularly if you grew up going to church and you've done religious things, what that sentence is simply trying to communicate is, listen, Christianity is not you doing a bunch of religious stuff. You got to hear that. I know you know that. Hear it again. Christianity is not, hey, what Christians do is they go to church, so I'm going to go to church. That's not Christianity. 
It, it's not, hey, what Christians do is they sprinkle God on all the big moments of life, right? So you're going to go off to college, so you, you, you make sure that you have a prayer meeting or something. You buy a home, so you get a priest to walk through it and bless the house. You have a baby, you baptize him. You, you do religious stuff in all the big moments of life so that you could sprinkle God into all of that. And, and God's giving us a book like Hosea to say, I want you to know that's not what a metaphor for being my people looks like. It's not that you live life and all the major moments you find a way to sprinkle God onto that. God sends Hosea to say, listen, if you want to know what it means to be my people, think marriage. Because that's the metaphor of the kind of relationship I want to have with my people. And, and friends, I don't know if, you've, if, if we get this. This is why marriage even exists. This is why marriage exists. It's not like God said, hey, I need a metaphor. What can I pick? What can I pick? Oh, there's marriage. Let me borrow that. Let me hijack that so that I can illustrate what my relationship is going to be. He invented marriage for this reason. Meaning, he, he gave us marriage for thousands of years so that we'd have husbands and wives. And once we've been able to say, okay, we get that, he's able to say, you know why I gave you that? I gave you that so that you would have language, vocabulary, by which to understand the kind of relationship you and I are supposed to have. That's why he made marriage. He, he created everything out of nothing. He didn't need to make marriage. He invented marriage. He created marriage so that there would be language, vocabulary, for the kind of relationship, this one-of-a-kind relationship, so that it would serve as a picture for what he wants to have with us. And, and if you're married, or if you know someone who's married, which is all of us, think about that one-of-a-kind relationship called marriage. Right? It's like no other. I have children, and yet not even children are in the circle of the relationship called marriage. This woman and this man, there's nothing like it. Right? Think of the power of this relationship. I, I heard one person say, you know, if you think about how powerful this one relationship is, and, and maybe you, you'll know, if you're living your life, you could have everything go right. I mean, work could be going right. You're killing it at work, right? You have a million friends. You're the coolest guy on Facebook. Everybody loves you. You're the life of the party. Everything's going right. If things are not right at home, you feel that? Like, you can go, everything can be right, and yet this one person, you've got a million relationships that are perfect, and yet this one relationship is off, and you, you know, I mean, you just can't enjoy life. It's this incredibly powerful relationship. It's just this one other human being, and yet it has this power to bring you to the heights of heaven or to the depths of hell. Or, or the flip could be true too, right? You know that you could face all kinds of hardships. Work could be difficult. Your finances could be struggling and tight. Everything could be going wrong. And yet, if home is rock solid, you feel like I can face anything. We can make it, we can get through this. You can step into the world with great power. I mean, there's no adversity that's too much because you're together, you're one. Think about that. It's just, it's just a relationship. And yet, God's giving you a picture of the kind of relationship he wants to have. Or, or think about the intimacy in marriage. And I don't even just mean physical intimacy. That's just a picture 
of the kind of intimacy these two people begin to have. Right? To the point that no one in the world knows me like my wife does or knows her like I do. And you know that in marriage. Right? To the point, I heard one speaker say, you know, if, if a stranger came up to me and said, you are the kindest person I've ever met. Now, I'd feel really good for a second. But deep down, I'd know I fooled you. Right? Because you don't really know me. You don't know how cranky I am. You don't know my pity parties. You don't know my pouting. You don't know my tendency. You don't know anything about me. So it's a, it's a really nice gesture, and I'm glad I look that way on the outside. But you have no idea who I really am. So if, if someone came to you and said, you're the, you're the kindest person I've ever met, you'd take it as a compliment. You'd feel great for a second. But deep down, you know, I, I don't know what to make of that. Now, what if my wife, what if, because this is not going to happen. What if my wife came to me and said, you are the kindest man I have ever met. You almost get that that's never going to happen because why? She knows me, right? And if she said that, you'd go, this is completely different because now it's coming from someone I haven't hidden anything from. You can imagine what it would be like if your spouse who really knows you inside and out, you can hide yourself from everybody, you can even hide yourself from yourself and yet they see you. If they were to come and say anything, it makes a world of a difference because there's no other relationship like this. And all I'm trying to say is Hosea is told to get married because God is saying, I want a picture for the kind of relationship I want with my people and marriage is going to serve that. Because what I want is, I'm not looking to be an add-on to your life. I'm not looking to be a supplement. I'm not looking to be something you sprinkle on to some quadrant of your life. I want in on every nook and cranny of your life the way that marriage works. You know how when you go to sleep, she's there, and when you wake up, she's there, and when every moment of the day, he's there, and she's there? That's what I want for us. This is the picture of the kind of relationship, Hosea, I want my people to know that I have with them. And so I, I want you to ask yourself, what kind of metaphor would, would describe your relationship with God right now? And you should be honest about that. What kind of metaphor are you operating from? If God is like insurance that's going to bail you out when you die, that's not the metaphor. If God is like a vitamin pill that's going to supplement your strength and get you through life, if God is like a, a co-pilot that's going to help you navigate through life, if, if God is, is any one of those things, a, a Santa, a genie who's going to grant you your wishes in life, if you're operating under any other metaphor, let Hosea come this morning and correct you and say that's not Christianity. Christianity is a God who wants in on every nook and cranny of your life. So he comes to Hosea and he says, I want you to get married so that my people will know what a relationship with me looks like. So far, so good. Of course, it doesn't stop there. Listen again to 1 verse 2, because it's not just take a wife. Here's what he says. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Here's what he's saying. Hosea, I need my people. I need Seven Mile Road to see what our relationship is like. 
I need them to have a picture of what I'm like and what they're like. And so I need you to go marry a whore. Right? That's what he's saying. Now, at the very worst, this means literally go find a prostitute and marry her. At the very best, it means go find an unfaithful girl who you know is going to be unfaithful and marry her. Either way, whether it's a professional prostitute or simply an unfaithful gal, what God is telling Jose is, I want you to choose to love a cheating woman. I want you to choose to love a whore because that's what I've chosen to do. I have chosen to love a people who no matter what I do for them, no matter how faithful I will be for them, no matter to what ends of the earth I would go for them, I've chosen to love a people that I constantly know are going to be unfaithful to me, and I'm going to constantly find them in bed with other gods. Jose, I need you to marry her because if you're going to be a picture of what my relationship with my people is like, I need you to get what it feels like to be committed to a person that you know no matter what you do, no matter what you provide, no matter how good you are, no matter how much you love them, you're going to constantly, day after day, find them in bed with another God. That's what I need you to show them. That's what I need you to picture for them. And that's what Hosea does. And we struggle with that. And yet maybe Hosea gets... His life, including his marriage, is not about himself. All of it exists to display something about God. And so he goes. And you can just imagine, right? This is not a parable. This is not a tale. This is biography. So you can imagine. You can just imagine Hosea's buddies coming and saying, What are you doing? Listen, you, you can marry anyone in Israel. Don't marry her. Don't marry Gomer. She, she's got a reputation, Hosea, and not the good kind. You can imagine what it cost Hosea socially, relationally, personally. This, this is the prophet marrying Gomer. I mean, what, what would the people in town say when the man of God is marrying what everyone knows about Gomer? And, and, and you read that he does. He marries her. And listen to me. He doesn't just bite the bullet and go, fine, I'll do it. I don't know how God does it, but God gives to Hosea this deep, not stopping, never going away, committed love for Gomer. He actually loves her. He loves her like God loves his people. And they start a life together. They have a child together. She actually becomes the mother of his baby. And for a season, it's almost as if you just hope maybe things are going to be different. You almost hope and wonder maybe, maybe Hosea's love is going to be enough to change Gomer. But it doesn't last. Because look at verse 6. This is 1 verse 6. It says, She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. And then skip down to verse 8. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So here's what happens. They start a life together. They have a son. And then she gets pregnant and conceives two more times, and she bears a daughter and a son. In verse 6, we're told she bears a daughter. And in the Hebrew, her name is Lo Ruhamah, 
which means no more mercy. And again, remember, Hosea's life and his family and his marriage is all a picture for the people. And so this first daughter is no mercy because God's going to communicate, I'm not going to show mercy anymore. And he's warning them and threatening them and inviting them to come back. And then he has a son in verse 8. She bears a son and calls him Lo-Ami, meaning no more my people, not my people, not my kin, not my relative. And, and he's trying to, again, communicate, Israel, you're not going to be my people, and I'm not going to be your God. But, but here's what you learn. It's not just that these children are a picture of Israel. It's also describing to you what's actually happening in Hosea's house. What do I mean? Well, when you read of the birth of the second and third child, there's something very noticeably missing. When you read of the first child being born, it says, she conceived and bore him a son. She bore a son for Hosea. This is Hosea's son. But when you read of the second and of the third, there's no more mention of Hosea. It's she conceived and she gave birth to a daughter and she conceived and gave birth to a son. There's no mention of Hosea. And, and the text is starting to hint something about these two pregnancies. In fact, you couple that with, and then you name the kid, not mine, not my relative, not my kin, not my family. And then you couple that together with how in this chapter and in chapter two, it's going to say these are the children of whoredom. And you slowly begin to put the pieces together and you begin to realize Gomer's gone back to her old ways to the point that now Hosea is raising a son and daughter that he's not sure if it's his. He, he's now got children that are the fruit of her infidelity. And she's gone right back to her old ways. And what's hinted at in chapter 1 becomes painfully obvious in chapter 2 and 3. And by chapter 2 and 3, there's no more hinting anymore. Gomer's gone back. She finds herself in the arms of strange men, in bed with other lovers. And God wants to say, just like Israel, just like Seven Mile Road goes after other gods. As Gomer has found herself going to other lovers, so have my people gone after other gods. And listen, You've you got to take the minute to picture Hosea. Right? Can you picture Hosea tucking in three kids at night, realizing more and more that two of them don't really look like him, and every night trying to sleep alone in his bed while his wife is out again with God knows who? And if you can begin to picture that pain, then God is giving you a glimpse into his own heart and saying, that's what being in a relationship with my people looks like. That's what it looks like for me. That's what it costs me. If you can picture that pain, that hurt, now you've gotten a glimpse into the heart of God of what it looks like to be in relationship with you. And, and hear me some my road. As I think through this, I've never really pictured God hurt by my sin. I don't know if that makes any sense. When I think of God reacting to my unfaithfulness, my infidelities, my proneness to wander, 
I don't know what picture comes to your mind. I picture God angry, and that makes sense to me. God is angry when I sin. He's like a king. I'm like a subject. I mess up. He gets angry. I never really picture God hurt by my sin. Because in my mind, I really can't imagine that God has so tied his heart to mine that he leaves himself vulnerably to be hurt by someone like me. Right? Hurt means he's got to love me. There's got to be a relationship. That's the only way hurt happens. Anger can happen to anyone. Right? This, you, you think about it. When someone cuts you off in the road, you get angry. You don't get hurt. If a stranger cuts you off on the road, you might curse and say, why'd you do that? But you won't cry. You won't go, how could you have done that? Why? To, to be hurt means, to hurt means you've tied yourself to someone who can actually hurt you. Right? A, a stranger can't hurt me. But someone I've given my heart to wounds me. And to think that God has so tied his heart with ours as to actually leave himself open to being hurt by us. That he's not just a tyrant who's angry because we messed up. He's like a husband, like a lover committed to an unfaithful bride who's wounded by every infidelity, who's hurt by every scorn, who is actually hurt by my sin. I mean, so that the next time you mess up, it's not even just, God, please forgive me so that you don't zap me. It's, God, did I really just break your heart? Did I really wound you? That the love of God leaves himself open to be hurt by us. But his love doesn't stop there. So you, you get to chapter 3, and, and here's what happens. What's hinted at and what becomes obvious now gets to the worst state. And what we read in chapter 3 is that Gomer has now hit rock bottom. And the text doesn't give us all the details, but it simply suffices to paint a picture. Things have gotten really bad. That Gomer has left night after night her three kids and a husband who loves her at whatever cost to spend her nights in the hands of strange men until now she finds herself in the hands of the wrong man. And that's what you see in chapter 3. We're not sure exactly what the details are. But we find that Gomer has hit rock bottom and she's now in the wrong set of hands and something terrible is about to happen. And as you read it, every, every natural impulse in you begins to say, Hosea has every right, every reason to let her rot, to, to make her pay. And instead you're going to find he, he pays for her. Right? This is the opportunity to make her pay for what she's done. He's going to pay for her for what she's done. Look at Hosea 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, go again. Go again. That's, that's, Gomer's gone. You've got to go find her. Find her again. Right? So imagine what parts of town the prophet has to go to to find Gomer. What rooms he's got to check to go find Gomer. But either way, the point is he's going to go find her. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, or even as the Lord loves Seven Mile Road, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. That's just something to do with Canaanite idolatry. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. So here's the picture. 
Gomer finds herself in some kind of sort of public auction almost. The, the picture is maybe it's a pimp, maybe it's some wicked man, but she's basically being sold now as a slave. She's found herself in the wrong set of hands to the point that she's got a debt or something she cannot pay, and now she's being basically auctioned in public. Historians tell us that if that were the case, she's probably standing there in the nude so that her prospective buyers can really see what they are purchasing. And so you can picture this pitiful woman now in a heap with her hands in her face, trying to hide herself from all the men who are leering at her. And there, the auction begins. Five shekels, going once, going twice. And then perhaps almost to the amazement of her ears, she hears a voice that's familiar. Ten shekels, Gomer says, I mean Hosea says. And then a bidding war almost starts. Fifteen shekels going once, going twice, until Hosea says, fifteen shekels and a homer and a lethek of barley sold to Hosea. So that Hosea buys his wife back. Hosea pays a price to get his own bride back. Hosea, then you can picture him sort of covering her nakedness, redeeming Gomer going home. And, and I wonder if that entire trip home, Gomer's wondering, what did he buy me for? I mean, he is going to destroy me. What was his intention in buying me? And maybe even sensing that and wanting to put her at ease, Hosea says to her in 3 verse 3, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. And Hosea is almost putting her mind at ease and saying, listen, I want you back. I really want you back. Whatever the cost, don't do this again. But you're going to be mine and I'm going to be yours. And whatever it takes, I want to make this work. And Hosea brings his wife back. And in doing that, God says, that's a picture of what I'm going to do. That what Hosea did for Gomer is what the Lord does for us, is what the Lord does for his people. And there's even a hint in this story before it sort of wraps up of how he's going to do that. Look at Hosea 3 verse 5 for a second. This is Hosea now speaking prophetically of what's going to happen in the latter days. And he says, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So here's what he's saying. Israel, all of this, my people, have been a picture for you of how I will at whatever cost it takes redeem you and buy you back. Though you chase after many gods, I will take you back and you will return to me, Israel, in the latter days. Meaning, there's a day coming, Israel, when I will redeem you and restore you and you'll come back and in that day, you'll seek the Lord, and it says, you'll seek David, your king. Now, the problem is David's dead. So how are they going to seek David? Except that it means that someone's coming in the latter days who is like David or represents David or, or is a descendant of David or from the line of David. There's coming someone that you're going to come back through. And perhaps it almost shocks people. When Jesus shows up 
like he does in Matthew 9, and he says things like, I'm the bridegroom. Right? Some Pharisees go, why are your disciples fasting? And he says, how can they, how can they, why are they not fasting? How can they fast when the bridegroom's here? And all the people would immediately have known, wait, 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 there's only one bridegroom for Israel. And Jesus has the audacity to say, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom for my people. And he will be the one who at great cost, at great cost, and listen, not with 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley, but at the cost of his own body and his own blood, redeem an unfaithful bride. To the point that he's able to say to us and his apostle John is able to say to us in the latter days, just like for them, in the days coming, there's going to be a day when the groom, the true groom comes and I saw, it says, the church, that's us, an unfaithful people coming down out of Jerusalem dressed like a bride. It was given to her to wear white. And you think of that. A spotted, stained people like us was given the right to be dressed like a virgin bride who had been faithful to her groom and that day, Jesus says, is coming. So here's, here's what Hosea would ask of you. Has it been a while since you have felt the love of God for you? Then would you linger over Hosea? Would you, would you not just know it, but ask the Lord to give you help and strength to feel it, to feel the length and breadth and depth and height of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And knowing his love for you, would you begin to see your infidelities and sins, your proneness to wander, your unfaithfulness different? It's not just a king on a throne angry at your discretions or indiscretions. It is a, a lover of your soul wounded by your infidelities, who's left himself so vulnerable as to be hurt by your faithlessness? And would you come streaming back and would you know whatever it costs him, he redeems. And no matter what the cost, he covers our nakedness and he redeems us. So what is the love of God for us? Hosea comes with another metaphor and says, it's like a husband who loves an unfaithful wife. Let's pray together. Father, our prayer is what the scriptures pray. We bow our knees and we ask, O Lord, that you might give strength to all the saints here to comprehend what is the length and breadth and height and width and depth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, that we may be all filled with the fullness of God. In various ways, meet us exactly where we are and communicate to our hearts your love for us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>